Well, hey, everybody. Beards and Dunn are back in 2024. We've been on a little, uh, what do you call it, Dick, a sabbatical? I guess so. A uh, little holiday break during the during the holidays and stuff. But oh. gosh darn Dunn, it's great to be back. And I'm telling you, I, I'm i like a little kid at Christmas right now. I mean, we, <laughs> hey, we, hey. we couldn't be kicking off 2024 with uh, with a better guest than we have today and um i am just i you know i um don't let the cat I, out of the bag yet <laughs> i've got butterflies in my stomach that's how excited i am well i, I dick and i talked briefly <laughs> right before we started and our our guest today really needs no introduction i told i told dick i beards i i'd introduce him and this is going to be quick because i don't want to waste time frank shorter's you know, if you don't know who Frank Shorter is and and, uh, and some of his accolades, you have not done your homework. You have not been paying attention. And uh, I'm going to put on our, our website and on our uh, link uh, to his website. And you can, it's really fun. I went there and looked at at, at Frank's, uh, I don't know what you call it, his his um, Palomars, I think is how they call it over in Europe here, his records, his uh, accomplishments. And they go without, you know, com- there's nobody to compare. Um, and on a personal note, you know, before we get started here, Frank, you know, 1972, I was a, a, a 15 year old high school year. I think you're 10 years older than me. I hate to throw that yeah, at you, but yeah. yeah. And 76. so, yep. And so when I, in 1972, I was just starting my running career and you were, you were coming into your own, obviously with the Olympic gold medal at the marathon and, and what an inspiration, you know, you've been kind of given the, the title of starting the running boom and and I, I like to think the boom would, uh, you, you definitely supercharged the boom. And, uh, and you know, it's hard to put into words. When I was out running, I tried to emulate your style. You know, that's, that's the kind of way <laughs> kids look to, and I, I, you know, I don't want to make your ego or your head too big, but, you know, you were an idol to many of us. And, uh, you know, if the way you're, you kind of had your elbows out a little wider than a lot of guys. And, I, you know, and, and if, it, if it's good enough, Frank Shorter, it's good enough for me. And, uh, <laughs> and so, you know, many, many a training run, I would always kind of use the, uh, you know, um, imagery. You know, and and I was out there running uh, the Olympic 10K. I was out there running the Olympic marathon, and I was, you know, I was trying to be Frank Shorter, and and, um, and it was it's such a treat. You know, if my high school coach Gene Borman, and he's still living, and I think he still listens to this. If 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 I, you know, in 1972, when I was scouring track and field news from cover to cover, looking for results and reading about your your exploits over in Europe or all over the world. If I would have known then that someday I'd get to have this opportunity to visit with you, you would have been able to knock me over with a feather. And before we go any further, one little last thing, Frank, you know, Dick and I, when we met each other in college, we just hit it off. And and I can remember going to a restaurant with Dick and they said, yeah, what name should we put on this? You know, because they'll call your name, go sit at the bar. And Dick goes, Frank Shorter. And I go, I looked at Dick and he goes, Mike, it's so cool. I always say Frank Shorter because then when he go, yeah, we have a table for four for Shorter, Frank Shorter. He goes, you should just see all the heads in the room turn and swivel. And so I started doing it. I started doing it too because it's just, now you know who you're dealing with. But, but Frank, I, I'm so honored and, and it's such a pleasure. We're going to get into some good stuff. And Beards, your turn. Yeah, well, again, Frank, uh, we're going to let you do a lot of the talking here. But yeah, the accolades go out. Uh, you know, you, you are, I mean... Even non-runners know who, exactly. who Frank Shorter is and and what you did and everything and and so Frank, let me ask you this. So you know, when you were a young kid, did you 
did you pick up running early in your life? How did you get started in this uh, crazy career of uh, being a top-notch distance runner? Well, I actually wanted to be a downhill ski racer. Oh. And, <clears throat> yeah. And when I was 10 years old, I grew up in a little town in upstate New York, Middletown, New York, near West Point. And I read in the ski mag, and I used to ski in the ski areas in, in New York. And, and I read in the ski magazines at that time, the French were the best in the world. You know, uh, Jean-Claude Key, right. Guy, Guy Peria, André Duviard. And then <clears throat> the French women were also the best. Uh, I think it was Crystal and Marion Goichel, the Goichel sisters. And so I read that in the off season, they actually ran for training. And the way I put it is the Austrians, the, who, whom they were dominating, uh, the way I put it is they, they went back to the farm and buck bales. Right. Yeah. Where, whereas the French were actually training by running. So I started to run and I was about 10 years old and I would run to and from school in this little town and, and I lived on the other side of town from the middle school and it was about, it was 2.3 miles. And sometimes I would run, sometimes take the bus. And, and uh, the reason I have the form carrying my arms that Dunn was, was, <laughs> was talking about yeah. is that I used to carry my books in my left hand and, and cradling them because we didn't have backpacks. So I would, I had the loose leaf and all my books <laughs> in my left hand. So if you watch when I run, my right hand moves more and my left hand in, in relatively doesn't move much at all. What and a so great story. Yes. Yeah. That's where the form, that's where the form came from. <clears throat> and then I guess I must've been very, and, and I found out I really liked it. I, I enjoyed it. Yeah. And I wanted to get better at it. So... <clears throat> I found a pair of sneakers at the time, which would have been, oh, you know, 1960, 61. And, and they were low cut and they had thin soles rather than the thick soles that the, that the sneakers had at the time. And I started to wear those to and from school. Well, it turned out that the school had a dress code and boys could only wear black tie shoes. <laughs> and so I convinced the principal of the school to allow me to wear these sneakers because I was quote training. The other thing when, again, I was 10, 10 11 years old in gym class, I convinced the gym teacher to allow me to run laps around the field the exercise field rather than participate in the gym relays and everything else that was going on. Dodge so, ball and what have you. Yeah. And, and so I, and it turned out that when I then went to prep school, I went there as a skier. I went to North, it's now called Northfield Mount Hermon. Then it was called Mount Hermon. And they had a great ski team. They were in Western Massachusetts um, in the Berkshires. And I was on the ski team uh, before I was ever on a cross-country team. Wow. And so, yes. And so I was a three-way skier. I jumped and, and, and skied downhill and cross-country. 
but I was still kind of training on my own because of the French, the French you know, sure. connection. <laughs> and, and it turned out that I was pretty good at both. And at the end of my junior year, I was actually elected captain of both the ski team and the cross country team. Wow. <laughs> yeah. In prep school. And I, for whatever reason, and I think one of the reasons is any of you who have ever ski jumped, because we were three-way <laughs> skiers, we jumped, skied de- oh my downhill gosh. and cross country. But all it took sort of in the middle of my junior year before my senior year, you work your way up in the jumps. And I got to the point where I was going off a 50 meter ski jump in Greenfield, Massachusetts. And I'll never forget, I stood at the top of this and you carry your skis over your shoulder, right? And you climb up these stairs. And I suddenly realized once you start climbing up the stairs, you can't say, oh, no, I don't think I'll do this. (laughs) And you you can't get off the ski jump. And so I got up there and I'll never forget Um, And my wife, Michelle, gets on me all the time for these stories. But anyway, and she says, I should write this stuff down. I'm standing at the top of the ski jump. I'm about two people to go. (laughs) And it was totally wooden, the ski jump. And the in run down the jump was through a very thin coat of snow so that the, 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 the tracks that they'd made in the snow uh, going down this jump were very, very shallow oh, and no. icy. Okay. And the guys ahead of me, I would look and they'd go down and the wind would hit the jump back and forth. And they, the, 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 the tracks would go back and forth underneath these guys' skis. There, there was no, oh my gosh, there was no stability going down there. And I thought to myself, um, maybe I'm not cut out for this. And so to my credit, I jumped. I probably didn't jump very well. So when it came time the next year um, to make a decision, I decided in my junior year that I would cross, only concentrate on running my senior year. And it was one of those situations where I had a wonderful coach. His name was Dick Kellum. And he was a very good skier. And I went in and I talked to him and I said, <clears throat> you know, I'm having pr- good success in cross country. And I have really decided I want to focus on that. And he said, that's fine. And he could have, you know, made me feel guilty about, you know, leaving the ski team. And he didn't. So that's my senior year. That's when I decided to focus on running. And then historically, I, I hope I'm not bragging too much because we all know, right, Dick, you, you develop over your career. You go from a small pond to a little bit bigger pond to all a right. little bit bigger pond. And, and that's the way you should do it. And your goal is to always do as well as you can in the pond in which you find yourself at that particular moment in time. And the prep school league, our cross-country uh, team, were the perennial champions, you know, with all the blue blood uh, prep schools. Uh, you know, I can mention them, Andover, Exeter, St. Paul's, Choate, Groton, Middlesex, that whole hmm. uh, Eastern prep school league. Well, Mount Hermon was a very good cross-country team. 
And so our cross-country team, my senior year, I set a course record on every cross-country course on which I ran. Uh, and we won the New England Championships. And um, so that's when I kind of got the bug and said, maybe there's uh, something I can do here in running. So short story long, <laughs> that's that's how I kind of got into the running. Well, and, and Frank, Dick, you know, many people, you know, know you as you know, the Olympic marathoner and a marathoner, but my gosh, I mean, you you won national titles in cross country and you know track track. It's it's Indoor I mean track. it's off the charts. The the amount of accolades and and the amount of of uh, great running you did at uh, other distances besides the marathon. Now, now, before we get into that, Frank, did you get recruit? I know you went to Yale, if I'm not yes. mistaken. Yes. Did you get a scholarship, athletic scholarship? Well, no, Yale, the Ivy League doesn't have athletic scholarships. Hmm. In fact, it, they had at the time, and I think they still do, what's called need blind admission, which means you have a file which is that at which they look to begin with to see if you qualify academically. And then if you're admitted, they look to see if you require financial aid. Hmm. So you file a financial aid statement with your admissions, but they never look at it while they're deciding whether or not you will be admitted. Ah. And in the first couple years, uh, I didn't need it because my father was a doctor in, in upstate New York, but then he moved my entire family, my nine siblings and I, to Taos, New Mexico, and he became the head of a Presbyterian mission hospital between Taos and Santa Fe uh, that, that serviced um, the indigenous Latino population. Indigenous is the wrong word. Well, no, it's a combined indigenous Latino Indian population that, that's in the Sangre de Cristo Rocky Mountains ah. from the 1600s. So when they moved there, my junior and senior years, I was on scholarship. And my last year, I was I was on a, a full scholarship based on need. Ah. You know, I always wondered how the Taos, you know, I I used to have that little yellow pamphlet that said Frank Shorter. I think it came out in seven, shortly after in 72. Did Runner's World put that together? And John Parker. I, John oh, Parker that's wrote that. The okay. same guy who wrote Once a Runner. Yeah. Yes. And I had a copy. And, you know, when you came to the Dick Beardsley Marathon training camp and for the Dick Beardsley Half Marathon and that several years ago, I scoured and scoured my mother's, you know, because you know, I'm afraid, you know, so many of those great treasures now that I wish I would have hung on to, it was gone because I would have had you sign it. But I remember in there, it, it had a lot of stories about Taos, New Mexico. And, and after you started really seriously training, I think you were living in a trailer. And remember, there's a story about it. It said the heat quit and you went out and the propane tank was sitting there and you didn't know what to do. You kicked it. It fell over and broke. And I think, oh, John no, yeah, Bar yeah. Well, yeah. The story was, what did you do that then? I, we froze. <laughs> I think your quote. Yeah. Well, you, you, and I, I would train at altitude and drive up to the Taos ski Valley, which was the base area was 9,000 feet. Wow. And I actually sometimes would camp out in my car in a full, you know, they, they had very good, uh, you know, garments uh, even then, uh, you know. And and so 
I, I was always warm, but I just <laughs> instinctively enjoyed the uh, running at altitude. And Dick can talk about this as well. For me, I also think mentally it was an environment, and Dickel obviously did the same thing. You, you like to develop your training once you reach a certain level uh, to modify it in a way that you feel you're getting a maximum benefit and in a way the people against whom you're going to compete wouldn't pos- perhaps get the same <laughs> right. kind of benefit. You've, you're specializing your training to a point where then you focus on it and you train that way as hard as you can. And I think part of the confidence is, you know, I don't care if people know what I'm doing because if they try to duplicate it, I don't think they're going to get the same result that I get. I want them to know. And and so um, exactly. running it nine to 10,000 feet uh, and, and again, thinking you're training harder than anyone else. I can tell the Steve Prefontaine story now. He came to stay with me a couple, three months before he died in 1975 <clears throat> because he realized, and we'd roomed together a lot on the, on the circuit, that we trained alike. We both trained like 5,000 meter racers. And he also realized that altitude worked. And so he was going to, and what do you do? You look for a mentor. Well, I was the mentor and he was the mentee. <laughs> and he came to Taos. And it was just at the uh, beginning of April and we, we lived up at the ski valley at 9,000 feet. And uh, every day uh, when we were up there, we were there about two weeks. We would ski in the morning. And then the other story about this is Steve, Steve, I call him Steve, Prefontaine, Pre didn't, had never skied. So <laughs> got him rental equipment. And we were staying right on a beginner's hill. And we could go down and sort of walk over to the lift on the beginner's hill. It was about 200 yards long, the hill. So we went up to the top. And at the bottom, I kind of showed him how to, how to uh, snow plow and you know, walk <laughs> up the hill, side, sidestep a little bit and learn how to snow plow. Took him, up, took him up on this lift. And this is a reflection of Steve's personality. Got off the lift and we're there and, and, you know, in the snowplow position and I'm showing him how to put pressure on the ski to do the turns and everything else. He gets into the snowplow position, skis straight down the hill <laughs> into the hay bales at the bottom of the hill. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and, it's like a bullet. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and so what does he do? He gets back up and says, I'm going back up. <laughs> So, and by the end of our stay there, we had him up on the main mountain. Wow. That's what we did. But so we would ski in the morning and then at 11 o'clock we would take off and there was an access road that went up about 3000 feet. It was eight miles long from the ski valley down towards town. And we would run four miles down that road and back up. So we ran eight miles at 11 o'clock came back, had lunch, skied the afternoon, <laughs> and then ran from the base area up the access trails to 10,000 feet. My goodness. And down. Yeah. and down. Okay. One day, it was snowing, and again, you in, you, you guys in Minnesota, you right? know, 
every once in a while you get what's called corn snow. You know, it's like 32 degrees yes, snow that terrible. hits you. It's like pellets. It's like kicks in it. And it <laughs> melts as soon as it hits you. So we went out for our morning run one day and the wind was blowing so hard the corn snow was being blown vertical up a 9% grade oh my that gosh. we had to work to go down. <laughs> wow. And, <laughs> and what people don't know about Steve Prefontaine was that he is what I call a pisser and moaner. <laughs> he complained. He loved to complain. Didn't matter <laughs> what it was. He loved to complain while you're running. Dick, you know these kind of guys. Oh, yeah. Right? They're, they're having a great time, but they got right. to complain. And he starts complaining and he was just going at it. And I turned to him and we, we just started down the road. And I said, you know, Steve, no one in the world is training harder than we are right now. And he shut up for the entire run. <laughs> <laughs> he he didn't it. say a word. So, you know, that's, I don't, I don't know how we um, got there, but it, it really does, I think, show how when you you find yourself you know improving and and again I I'd, I'd like to know about you know how how this happened for you Dick because it had to be the same way you know the runners come out of nowhere and my own way I came out of nowhere and in your own way you came out of nowhere yeah exactly and you know Frank for me you know training here in in Minnesota you know you're and I you know I trained I lived in an area where I didn't have really anybody to train with. Mike would come up and visit once in a while and it was great running with him. But, um, you know, I, uh, I pretty much always trained here in Minnesota, even during the winter time. And I don't know, there's something about, you know, when you're out running and it's 30 below zero and, and like you just <laughs> mentioned, there's snow and things like that. It just, I think it just mentally makes you tougher. And I would, uh, you know, I would at the end of a, of a, of a run when it's 30 below, I'm thinking, nobody is doing what I'm doing today. Kind of what you thought the same thing. Same and, thing. and even same if thing. they were, I, in my mind, they weren't. And so that just, you know, it just kind of builds that inner confidence inside you. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and we, we find our own ways and those, those mental similarities are the same. And I also think Dick, the way we uh, are parallel, you know, we had coaches, but I think when you train remotely like that, you, you really can become in a, to a certain degree, your own coach. Right. And, and you can report to your coach, but it, the, the way you, you integrate it into your training is different. Your coach isn't there watching you. Exactly. And, and I and, think in timing you. Right. And I think you're exactly because, you know, coach Squires coached me, but you know, he was in Boston and I'm out here in, in, in Minnesota and we'd report, but it's not like, you know, like now there's so many of these, these, these big time training groups that have a coach on them, you know, 24 seven pretty much. And, and, uh, which is, I guess a good thing for the most part, but again, I think it was something that, you know, that it made us a little tougher when we didn't have somebody just, you know, putting a watch on us, you know, every time we went out the door for a run. Let's say yeah. into that. Yeah, yeah Frank, uh, the Frank, the Florida track club, you know, I, I can start dropping name, Jack Batchelor, Jeff Galloway, Barry Brown, yourself. How did that, how did that group come together? Yeah. Oh, it was all Jack Batchelor <clears throat> and Jimmy Carnes, who was the track coach and people forget he'd actually been chosen as the uh, Olympic coach, track and field coach in 1980. 
Oh. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Jimmy, of his own admission, was not a good coach. He was really? a great organizer. He hmm. was an organizer. Okay. And he said, <clears throat> in, in the same way that Bill Bowerman in 72 said, look, I can't coach you guys. He was, you know, head of the Olympic right. track team. He said, I, I can't coach you. I can just make things as easy as possible for you. And and Jimmy basically did the same thing. And he used his um, savoir faire is the word that comes to mind <laughs> in his own. I, it, there must be a Southern equivalent of savoir faire. And, and, um, and he was just smooth, but in a good way. And Jimmy was one of those guys who could get people to do things for him. You know, just like a great um, uh, meat scheduler or sure. know, meat director. You know, Fred Lebo comes to mind. Right. Mm. You know, he could he could just, because you realize he loved the sport and he loved doing what he was doing. And he, he and, and the way I always like to put it, he, he wasn't on his way anyone else, anywhere else. He wasn't going to capitalize on it. So he starts the Florida Track Club, and and Jack is sort of the first guy there, and then John Parker, who we whom we talked about, was yeah. there. And I met and I met Jack at the Florida Relays my senior year in college, and I met him in the two mile race where he finished a straightaway ahead of me. Hmm. <laughs> wow! Yeah. yeah, yeah. In in the open, it was an open two mile, <clears throat> and. It's one of those things, as you know, you meet people just like with Kenny Moore. I met him at the national championship and he went by me in the final straightaway and avoided going to Vietnam and never mm. told me he was, had to beat me to do that. I said, oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. But that, but it was that kind of situation. And, and so we jogged down and, you know, just remembered so that when I decided that I wanted to move to Florida to train for the Olympics, he came to mind. And again, mentor. I talked about me, Steve Prefontaine, and 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 me training together, and, and I was sort of a mentor, and he acknowledged that. You see, that's that's what we used to do in our era, and I and I'm not sure they do it that much again. People who train together also mentor each other. Um, it may go on, but and so I moved down there, and what Jack taught me. He didn't teach me how to go hard. He taught me how to rest. And that's so important. He taught me how to recover. Yep. I mean, we never timed our easy runs. And we actually had uh, on our easy runs, we had a loop. And we would all warm up together with wives and dogs and everybody, you know, for three (laughs) miles. And then we would take off and do our run. And on that run... We went at the pace of the person who wanted to run the slowest on that day. Hmm. And you know, Dick, that you sense that. Right. You know who that person can be. And you just fall right in. Well, usually it was Jack, and Jack was slow. And he ran (laughs) easily. They talk about (laughs) conversational pace. Jack ran conversational (laughs) pace. And... And so, and we would actually sort of work and exclude people who didn't want to do that. Yeah. And, and so that's what, it, and the other thing is, uh, Jack taught me the 20 mile run. 
And that was his instinct. And I like to believe that, you know, he said, no, you don't do any more than that because you do more than you don't recover for the intervals the next time. Sure. And I think we all found that. And then the physiologist found out that, yeah, you have 2000 calories of glycogen stored in your body and you use it at about a hundred a mile. And so what happens when you get beyond 20 miles? You right. start looking for another energy source. <laughs> exactly. So we were just, yeah. He was picking up on that instinctively. So he taught me that as well. I never, never ran more than <clears throat> 20 miles in training. So Jack was the person. And then socially it was great um, because John Parker and I lived together and, and uh, for a while, and he's the one who convinced me to go to law school. By example, he was going to law school at the time. I'll be darned. And yeah, yeah. So when I and and people may not know, I dropped out of med school because they wouldn't let me. I, I as an undergrad, I was a pre med major, and I was in med school right after, and I had success running, and I wanted to change my training schedule, my uh, my course load. Sure. So that I I could get sleep. That's all I wanted. (laughs) I I would do all that was required. I just knew I had to sleep. And and my argument was, uh, because I was a psychology major, and I said, I know a little bit about learning theory of time. And I said, staying up for 140 hours in a row isn't the best way to learn. (laughs) No. Uh, And, (laughs) you know, so... But unfortunately, the dean at the time looked at me right in the eyes and said, but you know, you can't do it because this is the way I did it and we do it. Ah. So I couldn't change. What? That's when I decided to go to Florida. So I said, I'll go where the best runners are. And, and I felt Jack was the best in the country. So that's how I ended up with Jack. Wow. Interesting. Cool. Let's do okay, some more right. name game, if that's all right. You know, I'm sure you've been asked this a thousand times, Frank. You and Bill Rogers' relationship, because, you know, Bill kind of, I thought, burst on the scene, even though I, you know, not too many people are aware he got third in the world cross country in 75 before Boston. Right. And and that, you know, very underreported in the United States. It was kind of, I think I didn't even find out until years later. And, uh, but then when he ran that, you know, I was starting to really follow the sport in the early 70s after you. And then, you know, Boston Marathon, you know, Jerome Drayton and, and you know, Kit, Tom Fleming and all these great runners. And then all the ones, some guy named, and, and I had to laugh. Our paper didn't call him Bill Rogers. They called him Will Rogers, which I thought was <laughs> a great philosopher, comedian, <laughs> right. Will Rogers. They, sure. they put it, they will, not Bill. But I found out later it was Bill. And, you know, wearing the T-shirt with the handwritten Boston track club on it and stuff. And I thought, how in the world did this guy come out of nowhere and run a 209.55, if I'm not mistaken? And then, you know, um, he didn't, you know, uh, went on and you and he tied, if I'm not mistaken, was at the 76 trials in the marathon trials. Well, we had an agreement that we were Mm going to tie and we ran together and, um, we uh, ran alone at the front in the trial, and I think we went through halfway in 105. Wow. So we had, we had, yeah, we had a good lead run together. Yeah. And I, I think it was John Vitale who was behind us. I'm trying to remember everybody 
no, 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 no. It, it, it was uh, Don Cardong. And, Don Cardong, and, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so about a half a mile from the finish in Eugene, and, and Tony Sandoval was there too. He was okay. on his way up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that those we ended up being the top four. But about 800 meters from the finish, Bill pulled his hamstring. Oh. And it, that's what it turned out. And so he started to uh, knot up and, and I slowed down with him. And I, and I, I said, do you want to run? Because we were going to tie in the race. Right. And, and he said, no, 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 you, you go on. I, I can finish. And he knew because he didn't want to slow me down, which was, you know, great. That, sure. That's a reflection of his personality. So I think I finished eight seconds ahead of him. And but I think the more important part of the story is at that trial, we didn't have much time before the Olympics. Yeah, how much time did you have, Frank, back well, then? Well, I think it was May. And right. so we had June and July. So not much and, recovery time. No, it was about two months, maybe mm-hmm. less. Yeah. And so, yeah. And so I don't think his hamstring recovered. And that's what happened in the Montreal sure. race. And so that that was it. But to get back to what you said, you know, when he had his breakthrough race, I was in that World Cross Country Championship race. And I finished, I think, 19th. Ah. And, um, and so I knew, you know, I was not surprised when he ran 209.55. Okay. Yeah, because... You know, I've always felt that cross country uh, and the steeplechase are sort of bridges to the marathon. You know, steeplechasers, for some reason, I think some of them can become good marathon runners and um, at least do well at it. And then the other is cross country. Sure. And so, yeah. And so, but, you know, Bill and I became, um, and we sort of overlapped in careers. We, we, we had a certain time when we overlapped a little, uh, but I was the first part of the seventies and he was the yeah second part of the seventies and one or the other, I think almost the whole decade was ranked number one in the world. Oh, I know so, either it was either you or Bill or Bill or you. It was just crazy. So would you, yeah. would you, would yeah. you say it was a friendly, friendly rivalry? Very friendly no. rivalry? No, no. Okay. <laughs> no. Um, but we, did become friends after. Hmm. And um, so, you know, I think over time. Sure. And I think, um, again, I think that's the way all of us, uh, you know, can be. And and I loved his story, you know, that, that he says, you know, he was a conscientious objector and working in a hospital and in, in, in <laughs> smoking. Hartford and, and smoking and <laughs> right. saw me run the Olympic saw me run in the Olympics and said, I can do that. His, his motorcycle and got people, stolen. <laughs> and people, yeah. And people for, don't know that in uh, 1967, the fall of 1967, there was a cross country uh, practice meet between Wesleyan and Yale on the Yale golf course. And in, in the fall of 1967, Amby Burfoot, Jeff Galloway, Bill Rogers, and I ran a cross-country race. No kidding. Wow. Those yes. three were, yeah, were teammates against yep, you. How, they you, were how teammates. did it end up? How did it end up? How, 
I don't know. Ambie probably won because he was running the best at the time. Mm. Um, but again, I think what's interesting is I don't remember, you know, yeah. what, what, what the exact finish was. It was just the idea. And, and the as we know, historically at the time, Ambie uh, Wesleyan was uh, division two and he was the perennial national division two champion. And so, you know, he was, he was sort of the big guy. And he went on in '68 to win Boston what? in 1960. Then he wins Boston in '68, which uh, oh yeah, yeah, you know, oh, yeah. You to think of those four college guys in the same race in '67, and then go ten years down the road and see how they ended up right. doing. Wow. Yeah. Yep. That's 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 amazing. That's amazing. How about uh, let me throw uh, uh, another name at you, Joan Benoit Samuelson. How well do you do you know Joan? Uh, actually, very well. Hmm. And um, I, I realized early on how good she was. Um, and I'm not bragging about it. It's just I happened to be in certain places. And in the 19, I think it was 82, uh, there was a, the London Marathon. And I think it was before her Boston win. Mm-hmm. And Joni was in that race and I called the race for television, NBC. Sure. And I watched her run and she ran in the lead uh, for about 20 miles and then faded. And ironically, Lorraine Moeller won that race Hmm. and she wouldn't win her medal in the Olympics till quite a while later. Right. Yes. And so, but I watched it and I'll never forget. I met Joni and she and her mother had come over to watch her run and they were wearing these Norwegian matching Norwegian sweaters. <laughs> and, and I, I walked up to them and I said, Joni, you, I, I didn't call her Joni. I said, I just want you to know you, you ran just right and really well. You know, you could tell. Hmm. And um, I actually, I think it was maybe even before Boston, maybe after in the road race that I became involved with in my hometown, Middletown. And Dick, one of my favorite photos is on my grandmother's porch with you yes! and, me and Rod Dixon Frank. At, that, at that race. I just, you know race. what? I've got that picture. And, and in fact, I was going to bring this up, but as long as you're talking about it. So in 1982, um, I got invited out to this, the, the uh, Orange Classic, 10, 10K Classic in Frank's hometown of Middletown, Middletown um, New York. New York. Yeah. And I remember it was a hot day. And Frank, you you absolutely put the smoke on all of us that day. I mean, you beat Rod by like, I don't know, 18, 20 seconds. I got fourth. and But I'll never forget afterwards, you having us all over to your mom's place. And we're up there on the porch drinking beer. And just, it was, it was so cool. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, we we had fun, and after that, you know, they they invited Rod because Rod was the number one road racer at the time. Right. And and again, why was it a surprise that later on he would you know win the New York City yep. Marathon? Yeah. And yeah, and you know, we we you could tell it, it, these guys don't drop out of the sky. They have performances <laughs> leading up to it that can tell you. Yeah, but. Um, but I invited Joni to that race. In I remember hometown. she won it that year. 
yeah. And so, yeah. And so that, and um, we've become good friends, cool. um, good, good friends since then. And um, yeah, it, it just, it's one of those things. And, and Dick, you're the same way. You, you can tell, you can spot people. Sure. You know, people think we get in a group and we start running in a group together. We've, we've been paying attention to who was ever there for a long oh, time yeah. before <laughs> that point. And we know how they run. You know, we know what their results are. We, we like to think we know what their strengths are. But again, you know, it, it, uh, but Joni is, Joni's just tough. Oh, and, tougher than nails. <laughs> well, I think she ran the Olympic trials marathon in 84 about 17 days <laughs> after yeah. her orthoscopic yeah <laughs> exactly and and, and the words and the words she used to describe it in, in a sense was well i started out and i figured i might as well go really really hard to, right from the start to see how it was going to be <laughs> you know i call it i call it the let's find out um, attitude. Well, and Frank, you she kind of did that in the Olympic marathon. You know, she takes off after about three miles and nobody goes with her. And it was, let's find out. Know, what that Ingrid, yeah. Ingrid Christensen and Greta Weitz were too busy talking to each other right? about how, how that was too early. Yes. And, and, and Ingrid, I mean, and, and, and uh, Greta said it was the worst mistake she ever made in her life in running. Yeah. I bet it's going with Johnny. I bet if she could have taken that back, she she probably would have gone with her. Because you know, yeah. it's like Frank. If if I was racing, running in a race against you, and all of a sudden you took off, it's like okay, it's decision time. And and you look yeah. at the runners like yourself or Bill Rogers, you you don't just let those guys go because they ain't coming back. <laughs> right. Bill Bill does it gradually, and I like to do it earlier and harder. Yeah. But in a way, it was the same tactic. Sure. Yeah, it was just a Bills was a very steady, subtle pressure that was just <laughs> right. kind of putting you right on the edge of going, do I really want to do this? <laughs> where, where, where's, where's with me? It was, man, I better go with him. <laughs> right. I hate to do this. We're going to run long because we could spend hours and oh hours. And I know that, but I did want to bring up, you know, you kind of said these guys don't drop out of the sky. <clears throat> you know where I'm heading with this, don't you? You know, Performance enhancing drugs, and I have to compliment you, Frank. You've been a leader. No kidding. Probably since 1972. I, I don't know if you, you know, Lassie Vera, and we can go back and rehash all that if we want, but it's hard to imagine they weren't using um, some artificial. But again, you know, that it's been part of the sport now for the last 50 years. Uh, cycling, which I've kind of gotten into lately, it's been part of that sport forever. You know, I had a friend of mine said, Mike, professional cycling is just a dirty, dirty sport. And, you know, at that level where people are, are making money and sponsors are expecting results and the Europeans take this stuff really seriously and, um, you know, will use performance enhancing drugs at a, at a very young age to try to be noticed, to try to move up in the ranks without having to, you know, you got to have the talent you know, if you take a plow horse and give him a 10 or 15% improvement, you're still going to have a plow horse, but you take a race horse and give him a 10 to 15% advantage. Anyway, Frank, I know you've been on commissions. You've led the charge on trying to help. I don't know what, what's the word I should try to use manage stop control, it. <laughs> stop it. 
Um, you know, I think it's maybe, an added, yeah, ma- go ahead. Maybe the fancy college board word is mitigate. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> you know, cause it's kind of, it's a moral decision. You know, Dick and I have, have had this conversation. I'm glad I was never given the opportunity, never saw the opportunity, never knew how to pursue the opportunity because human nature being what it is, you know, Dick got to where he was on pure hard work and natural ability. I got where I was on pure hard work and natural ability. Dick, I'm going to break. Dick ran 208. I ran 218. I wanted to, you know, I always said, if it didn't happen to me, I'm glad it happened to Dick. Because when you know somebody personally, you kind of, you know, you want people to be, I want to be successful in whatever I do. And if I, if I get successful, but I want super success, but I see my best friend get it. I am so happy. And, and, and so if somebody would have said, Hey, Mike, I think we can help you get there. Wow. You know, that's that come to, I almost said come to Jesus moment, you know, where the rubber hits the road. What kind of person are you going to be? You know, are you going to take a shortcut or are you going to say, no, you know, I, I, that's not right. You know, I, I commend you, Frank, going to 10,000 feet elevation was a commitment financially. I mean, so many ways, personally, your family, all that. But I think you recognize this is something I can do (laughs) definitely legitimately, definitely legally to help. Well, and Frank, you know, nowadays, You know, every, anytime somebody runs fast, it's like, oh, they buzz, you know, just like this gal that a couple of weeks ago ran 2840 for 10K. I mean, come on. I mean, and it seems like these athletes are, are one step in front of the testers as far as figuring this out. I mean, what are your thoughts on this whole thing? There you go. That's where I was trying to get to. Yeah. It's first off, um, I'd like to bring up a name that many people probably don't know outside of cycling, but you know his name is Andy Hampston. Sure. And Andy Hampston was the, in cycling, they say, domestique Mm. for Greg LeMond when Greg LeMond won the Tour de France. And Andy was actually a very, very good rider at the same time. He, he, in the Giro d'Italia, he won the climb up Alt d'Huez, which is one of the premier stages of any cycling uh, race in the world, in the snow. Le Mans retires, and I'll parenthetically say, I think Le Mans is probably the last clean cycling champion. Yeah. And Andy was the heir apparent. But at the time the EPO and the blood doping had, uh, and, and human growth hormone were coming in and Andy uh, decided to retire. And I knew him in Boulder. He actually bought the house he lives in now for me. Oh, wow. And I, I, oh yeah. I knew Andy a long time and I go for rides with him when I started to do duathlons <clears throat> and, and Andy retired went to Europe, started bike tours, and said, I'm not doing this. Um, And so there are people, and I sort of like to, uh, you know, think I was of the same uh, mode. Uh, I think I I came along at a time when maybe people, the the steroids kind of worked their way up. Uh, the ladder in terms of distance. Sure. They they creeped up. And then finally, the distance runners found out, well, yeah, you can do intervals and you recover and you can do three times a week 
rather than one or two. Yeah. And yeah, and not gain weight, not gain muscle mass. But before that, I think I think I benefited from that. <clears throat> then when it they started to come out, I I for whatever reason I just decided I wouldn't do it. Now I used to joke about it and say, well, I know enough about this that I didn't want to risk my health. Sure. You know, and so in a way I was saying, well, I I was just chicken because, you know, no, (laughs) it, 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 and at the time in 1974 at Cooper's Aerobics Institute, they brought a bunch of us down to (laughs) test us runners. And there were Kenyan high school kids and U.S. high school kids to see if there was any kind of difference in say uh, VO2 max. And there was, the Kenyans had genetically an advantage. Okay. And they were testing all sorts of other stuff, but it was one of the first psychological profile tests. And it was 1974. And one of the questions was, if you were to take um, drugs that you knew would get you a medal in the Olympic games, but you would die younger, would you take them? And I think the figure is, I think it was 42% of the answers were yes. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It, um, so it's always there. And all you have to do is look at Kenya and, you know, it's, it's an assumed risk. Now, I don't mean assumed risk. It is a risk that basically every Kenyan runner is willing to take. Because the money is so important. Yes. If you can avoid detection for two years on the world scene, you can go home with any prize money you have and become the patriarch or matriarch of an extended family and retire. Right. right. Absolutely. And so it, it's in, in weighing the risk. And then the other thing is when they say that, that they're always ahead of the testers, yes, <clears throat> it's true. What, as I said, mitigates that is the keeping of the samples. So the one thing you can do is really, really test, which means countries that give lip service to testing have to actually test and then also allow an incredible amount of out of country entities coming in to test them and, and uh, facilitating that as much as possible because the deterrent is what is the profiling now. In other words, you look uh, at profiles over time and that really is the way sure. to do it. And, and the start of that was something that, and I hope this isn't too obscure, it, it took a long time to do this because early on when we were running, they said, well, no positive test. Well, what can you do? Well, the first thing that happened was 1983. They, ra- they raided the Balco labs and got all this info on people. And uh, that was the records. So we made it so that records could disqualify you, your medical records. Then it came the profiling. And that's when you had the Lance Armstrong thing by about 2012. So it shows you how slowly this goes, yeah. 2003 to 2012. And he, he was disqualified more on the profile uh, in the variations. 
And as an aside, he, he got so paranoid about EPO tests that he went back to blood doping. And that's why they would stop the bus on the side of the road and take blood out and put it back in. And wow. because they were afraid to do EPO um, be, because of the hematocrit mm. test, I, I'm, the, uh, the EPO test. And, and once they started to see hematocrits, they could see that if most of this if your blood had all these new red cells in it, that's not the way it works. Right. You, you could look at the percentages of new cells. So I, I hope I'm not being too obscure here. No, no, it's but very the good. Point oh, is, it's good. And then it, it got to the point where now, yes, the profiling can be done. And the other thing that is happening is that a lot of races, we had a... a race in New York, which for a different reason, the New York Marathon withheld prize. They all can withhold prize money now pending, you know, subsequent Yeah, the testing. outcome. Yeah. And I think, I think it should be a strict liability thing so that, um, and I, people are going to disagree with me, but say you uh, win a marathon uh, and you don't test positive, and then um, you run another marathon, and you're tested, and you test positive. What does that mean? Exactly. Oh, when I won the when I won the money before, I wasn't I wasn't doping, but yeah. now you know, yeah. But you can't take away that money that I won then, and I I think they they have to figure out some way uh to penalize and maybe it's not well no for you i guess you get to keep the money that yeah. for which you weren't tested positive but the ban is lifetime yes that's i agree lifetime ban right right from the get-go and that might help corral it a little bit well i think what you're talking about yeah. frank too is the biological <laughs> passport is what i think the term is is where if you take a young athlete who shows real potential i could think of we had a kid from south dakota uh uh, Simeon Birnbaum, who is just phenomenal. You know, the kid ran a, a sub four at age 16. I think he was a junior and then uh, the youngest American kid ever to do it. And then he's, he's at Oregon now as a freshman and, and geez, you know, I've got great hopes for him to, you know, what a talent, but you know, we can, you can test him now and say, well, let's look at his VO2. Let's look at his, you know, many factors, chemically. And then over the next few, several years, as he hopefully develops and becomes uh, hopefully an international competitor, I think what you're talking about is all at once a sudden <laughs> something changed more than nature <laughs> could have possibly allowed. And so, you know, that I think it will help tremendously as well. But, and we are going to, last thing, super shoes, Frank, you know, we old timers have a real problem <laughs> with, with super shoes because we didn't get the, to get the benefit of using the darn things. And, you know, I've had the analogy of, well, the pole vaulters use bamboo. You know, I think of Bob Richards, the, the vaulting biker. You know, that guy won a couple gold medals. I can't even imagine the poles he was using. And I think it went over 16, yep. 17 feet. You know, and then I think of Bob Segrin came along at Munich. And, you know, they threw he, he the poles he qualified with were not allowed at the Olympics. Ended up getting the silver to a German, surprisingly. 
um, because East the, German, East German, because the right. officials said, no, you can't use those polls. Uh, they haven't been available. Well, East, Ger- East, yeah. East Germany was the country that complained and said, we didn't have these for practice. Yeah, they, they didn't have an opportunity oh, long yeah. enough. And so they agreed and it, you know, they he had to use a poll that he hadn't used for a while, but bless his heart, finished second. He was a gold medalist uh, in uh, 68, I believe. But anyway. Any thoughts? Any you know? I've had people say, "Mike, get over it. It's technology, computers, calculators. I mean, things have pr- progressed. We don't use the uh, abacus anymore, you know, and things like this." And so, what's what's your thoughts? Well, this comes back to um, my thoughts on what if, and it can work both ways. And again, Dick, we. I think we had an attitude towards our training and competing where we didn't want to ever be in a position to look back and say, well, what if? Exactly. You know, what What if I had? And you have to bear with me here. And yes, you can, it, in, in a way, you would have to do the same. I would have to do the same thing with regard to the super shoes, because if I say, well, what if <laughs> I had had them, you know, I, I can't go there. No. And the other reason is it's being shown that certain people right. benefit more, benefit yeah. more from these shoes than others. And so in a way, it's introduced a factor that was similar, but not the same as the drug enhancement factor. Right. Because some people respond to drugs better than others. High responder. Yeah. Yeah. And I always held that, that Lance Armstrong, I called them leapfroggers. He responded better. And that's based on a Soviet a weightlifter from the 1960s, 1968, when the steroids were first coming in. His name was Alexiev. And in one year, he went from fifth best to best in the Soviet Union, Hmm. leapfrogged all the other weightlifters. My theory is he responded better. Sure. And so I can't have an opinion for myself on this because I have no idea. I can't find out yeah, whether I was a leapfrogger or didn't respond. Hmm. That's, yeah. So that's, that's how I feel. Right. Well, we are yeah. creeping up on the hour. We try to keep this under an hour. I know uh, some people we might have put to sleep. I doubt it, but I, I, I Frank, I, I'm going to kind of wrap up here and say, thank you. I really appreciate you. Oh know, my gosh. What an opportunity from the Dick bottom of our hearts. Yeah. You know, I, I, there could be a t-shirt in it for you someday if we cross paths <laughs> anyway. And so, uh, you well, know, what I, I hope not. I, 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 <laughs> yeah. Just what you need. <laughs> well, you know, I'm, one last story about Frank. He came to the running camp that Dick hosts hosted and, and, um, Frank, I have to admit, you know, that was the first time I ever met you and you were so gracious. And what I was impressed with, you know, and I, I love Dick for the same reason. People have success and sometimes it changes them. You know, they become uh, other, I don't know what the word is, arrogant, full of themselves, cocky. Let's just go there. And uh, I didn't pick up on that from you at all. And if anybody had the right to be, it might have been. And, and I'm just, I'm kind of glad, you know, because sometimes when you meet your, I hate to say your heroes, they disappoint you. 
you know, and, and, and that's, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a gut punch. And you were so gracious. And I remember you were, you know, I'm not going to divulge any information here. You actually gave out your private email to some of the campers graciously and said, you know, if there's something I can do, and I can't remember, but you were very open and willing to help anybody at any time. And, and I think that's, that's a commendable. Yeah. Well, and I got it just to quality. No, I, I really need to qualify that at this time. Um, and it was always in a way that said, if your coach wants to contact me, mm. it was not direct contact. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and but I still- got to say one last thing too about Frank uh, just shows you the type of person he is. And again, you know, he's so high up on the mountain when it comes to what he's done athletically and running and everything. But, you know, when I lost my son, Andy, on October 4th of, of, uh, 2015, um, I was back out in bone still South Dakota where, where Andy is buried. Uh, this is a, a couple months after, or maybe a month after anyhow, I'm out there all by myself out on Lake Francis case, part of the Missouri river system in my boat, just kind of, it's still hard to, to, to fathom what had happened. And my phone rang and at the time it didn't have caller ID or anything. And I answered it and it was Frank. And, um, Frank just told me, he says, Dick, he's, you know, he said, I'm really sorry to hear about your son. And if there's anything I can do to help, if you need just to talk to somebody, you know, I'm here for you. And that Frank, I can't even begin to tell you what that meant to me at that time and still to this day. So uh, from the bottom of my heart, thank you for that. Thank you for all you've done for running and, and whatnot in our country and around the world. And thank you so much for being on with Dunn and I today. It's just been an absolute pleasure. Yeah. And Dick, I sent you a picture. You can use that picture. Looking it's a great picture, Frank. Now, Frank, you're 76 years like old. Now. You're, you're 76 and you look like a million bucks. You still look, you still looks like you could go out and, and gosh dang, run a two ten marathon. <laughs> well, it. don't, don't get your hopes up. <laughs> and, but, but the other thing is maybe you could use that, that picture and somehow get it into the, Oh, for we sure. Will. Uh, we will. That's we will. what I thought. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I look like now. Well, you look great, Frank, and uh, we want to thank you. We want to thank everybody for listening today. And if you have any questions for us or comments about our show, you can contact us directly on our website at beardsanddonepod.com, or you can leave us a comment on our Facebook, Instagram, or X, all at Beards and Done Pod. Yeah, and if you're watching on YouTube, be sure to hit the comment, uh, subscribe, and if you enjoy the podcast, um, we actually still have some merchandise available on our website, so don't be afraid to go check check that out. Uh, Dick, Frank, this has been a highlight of my life. Absolutely. There's no doubt about it, and I sure appreciate both of you. Have a great day. Thank you, Frank. Love you all. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Take care.